Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2024 and I'm really excited. If you're going to start your podcast properly, you've got to do it with somebody who's a bit of a legend and a music legend this man is. He comes from a music family. We're going to talk and explore his life because it's been a hell of a life. He's in a great place where he is today, but he might never have been here. Why? Listen in. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. In Demand himself, Mr. Festival, Mr. Club, Mr. Music, Lee Butler. What a beautiful intro. Yeah, it goes downhill after that. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was lovely, though. Yeah. How but are you, it, Pete? It's I'm, absolutely fabulous to be here sitting with you. I'm delighted. I'm delighted. Now, we're going to do this in two parts because I want to tease this week and let them listen next week as well because it's, you know... You are a music icon. Music is your life. And people don't understand this. Yes, you make money. Yes, you're successful. But music is incredibly important in your life, isn't it? Hugely. I always talk about the um, the power of music. And the power of music to me is just a very, very special thing. You know, music, one piece of music, Pete, can transport you back to a certain place, a certain friend, people you haven't seen for years, um, a certain nightclub, a certain podium. Um, a certain person, uh, just by one piece of music, can transport you back and paint pictures and colours like nothing else. And my passion for music's never stopped. You've just said that, and I've gone goose pimply. What's just jumped into my mind right now, sealed with a kiss, the original Brian Highland, and it was given to me in the days when I was fighting my sexuality, I was engaged to a lady called Vivian, and she came to Eastbourne and brought me that piece of music. That answers your question, doesn't I, I, it? When you tell me things like that, because this is what's nice about the podcast, I get to find things like that. I'd love to do a podcast with you. I could explore all these seven things. I never knew anything like that. But it is the power of the music can literally, yeah. one piece of music can put you back, especially for me, around Clubland. It can put me back yeah. in just a certain place, a certain time, a certain year. And brilliant pieces of music can instantly transport me back to it. I know what month it is. Yeah. I know where it was. I know what nightclub. I know what queue I was in trying to get in. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. Very powerful dad amazing man as in fact it's interesting who is more passionate about music than billy butler or lee butler that's a big question isn't it it is it is i'd be a difficult one to answer that a difficult one to answer um I, you know my dad's 81 now and i still pop around and see my dad regularly and have a cup of tea with him his passion still now for music and for radio it blows me away He's still full of ideas. He still can't wait. He'll ring me up and say, Lee, great idea for your show. Pop rounds and I'll go around and have a cup of tea and he'll be watching stuff on the telly. And his, his passion at, at, at 81 is phenomenal. Phenomenal. And um, he inspires me musically like that. So let's go back to the beginning, growing up. Who is Lee Butler? Well, grew up in Heighton. Um, and I have great memories of my dad being on the radio. Um, I always want some of the memories I have of my dad um, are of in the old. And you will you will know this when you were you were on the radio many years ago. There was no emails back then, or there was no um, no social media, no social media, no text service. So my dad used to spend hours and hours and hours. I can remember being a young lad watching him go through his mail. There were letters that had come in. Uh, did you have that when you were oh, doing yeah. your show? Like bundles of them. Yeah. I mean, like these are didn't literally... Didn't have as many as Billy. But didn't the, have as many These as are literally like the equivalent of, of your texts or yeah. Yeah. or emails or anything like that. Social media messages, inboxes, like Instagram, Facebook. He used to sit there with absolutely 
piles of mail opening them all reading the letters and they'd also get sent like um, little seven inch vinyls now all my music now comes through digitally and all your messages come through digitally there's no actual hands on but I remember my dad spending endless hours and hours listening to his music and, and just playing a little record player in the living room in Heighton in, just off Pilch Lane it was in Heighton um, and he'd just be playing a couple of seconds of a song and then he'd take it off and I'd say, Dad, how can you know whether you like that song? You've only just put the needle on once. He said, I know, son. I know, I know already. And I'm like that now. You instantly know, don't you? And he'd sit there with his mail and his tunes. And that was my first sort of thought about, like, I remember when I was about 10 or 11, getting a little Bush Hi-Fi system and um, pretending I was I was a DJ on there, just turning the mic on and off and pretending I was a DJ playing tunes in there. And looking back now, I think that it was it was in the blood, but the passion was there early doors. Interesting you say that. And this podcast is about Lee Butler, not about me, but I've got to jump in sometimes because this, what has just jumped into my mind now, as a working DJ, which I did for a long time, I what used to annoy me about audiences was if they wouldn't dance to a new record, they knew. Oh, sorry, you knew they would dance to it eventually. And the one that stays with me is Superstition Stevie Wonder. Oh, so what shoot. I used to do is they wouldn't dance; they'd walk off the dance floor. So I then would put on the best record, which they always get up to, stop it, put Stevie Wonder. I said, "You will dance to this record." <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. I educated them. Yeah, the point I'm making is, you know a record's going to yeah, be yeah, a huge hit. Yeah, yeah. you do. And, and, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time to break on the dance floor. You know what? Having them, I used to call them ones that you're on about, all yeah. on about there. You get out of jail, dance floor bombs, yeah. guaranteed ones that would have yeah. the dance floor. And there's what, there's, we've, we've all got them, even in the house music scene. There's certain tracks, certain bass lines, certain songs that you know, listen, this is going to work. When you have a new song like that, you can sandwich it in between some of them sometimes and just break it in. But I have great memories of, of my dad going through his, all his mail. And I, and I, I, had, a, I had the bug music from quite an early age when I was in Heighton and I wanted to be a footballer when I was in school like every young lad um, I've trained at Melwood for a few years with Liverpool but as soon as I got to 16 and I could get into nightclubs mm. um, When did you or did you grow away from your dad's music? Was there an age difference in, in music or did it happen gradually or have you always been part of that and then found yourself? See, my dad's always like I say if there was like, remember the 18 to 30s holidays that you could go yeah. on? Well, my dad's is a 30 to 80s. His <laughs> <laughs> is the older lot. I like, so I, I was never, but I do have an ama- I, a really, really good knowledge of like some of that 50s, 60s yeah. music. Like I love like Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, Young Girl, one of my favourite songs, like Third Finger Left Hand, Band of Gold, all the big 60s yeah. anthems. I love Neil Diamond, some of his, like, Forever in Blue Jeans. Like, I've got such a brilliant musical. Like, I'm very yeah. lucky in that sense. Then I like a lot of, like, sort of, like, new romantic stuff, The Smiths, like, um, Human League. And then I just, like, right across the board, I love yeah. loads of soul and Motown. Um, lots of it from here and my dad playing it. Lots of them songs. I know all the words to them. Like, um, these songs can come on the radio, these 60s songs, and I know every single word. My daughter said, how do you know all the words to these? They weren't born. <laughs> And that's probably being around my dad and listening to him playing a lot of this stuff. What was he like as a dad growing up? He was good. He was good, you know. Because he's, he's very he's very self-opinionated, which I love about him, and that comes over in his radio as well. 
He has an opinion. He has an opinion. He chose so I wonder what he was like with kids. He was he, he was one of the first persons to ever have a video camera. So I have amazing footage of me when I was young. Wow. My dad was legendary on because I used to play football all the time, like twice of a Saturday, twice of a Sunday. I was doing heightened boy um, heightened boys. I trained at Liverpool for a bit. And when I was young, I was really like leading goal scorer and, and the sense of push used to follow me everywhere. So I've got loads and loads of now on DVD of um, of me when I was young. So my dad would be on the line, but you can imagine the size of the video cameras back then. They're like a telephone <laughs> box on your shoulder. But he used to wear him commentating, and you say he was very he was very brutal in his commentary. So he'd be he'd be commentating great ball, son. Oh, lovely ball. Go on. Oh, you're admiring your own work, son. Oh, you lazy bastard. You lazy bastard. He'd be saying. And you'd hear them commentating, but I have loads and loads of brilliant footage of, of when I was... Isn't that great for your grandkids? Yeah. Isn't I have some terri- your kids? I have some terribly embarrassing ones, though, oh, that right. I have literally got a bribe on me dad. He knows Which I will ones? fall out. <laughs> he has a video of me in Benidorm in 1981 when his football team, the Billy Butler Charity 11, used to go to Benidorm to play football. And I was only 11, so I used to go with me dad. And there is... No, I was a bit older. probably about 14, 15. Uh, and there was a so macho competition on in the hotel and you had to sip to your boxies top off and flex and he's videoed the whole thing and Pete honestly it is the worst video you've ever seen he's he's been told straight listen this ever appears that's it we're finished but he's got some brilliant footage Jimmy when I was younger so when did you realize uh, growing up how famous your dad was um it was quite apparent early because he was he had the breakfast show, didn't he, on, on both stations. I think he went for two kept going back and forth. Two and from I know. Oh. He must have I knew, I knew yo yo. I knew there was a, a there was a pay rise, you know, when we moved from Heighton <laughs> to Blood. We went to Bloodle Sands from Heighton. We went from like this semi detached house in Pilch Lane and Heighton to this big posh detached thing in Bloodle Sands. And he used to go from Merseyside to City to Merseyside and then hold your plums and etc. And he did, yeah. Lots of people when I was younger used to be that's just Billy Butler's son. He's Billy Butler's son, you Billy Butler's son. Now he gets Yuli Butler's dad. Yuli yeah. Butler's dad. Yuli wow. Butler's dad. <laughs> Tell me what was it like at school? Did you get any bullying? Not that anybody would bully you, but did you get any grief from kids at school because of I your dad? I got sent off once when I was playing football. I got sent off because Billy Butler was my dad. I had a little argument with the ref, and he went, give us your name. And I went, Lee Butler. He went, you Billy's lad? He went, yeah. He went, go on, you're off. Give me a red card. <laughs> <laughs> so he must not like me, dad. Um, but other than that, not really, no. He was very well thought of, wasn't he? So, yeah. And he is. So, you know, there was never really... Uh, Never really much grief around me, Dad. So that was your. There was a, a, a grounding there, which was amazing for you over music. And your dad's record collection was ridiculous. Yeah, he, crazy. Yeah, and he, he came round after some of mine. He got me Tabla Motown off me. You know, but that's another story. So <laughs> let's put your dad to one side. So all of a sudden, Lee Butler, good-looking lad. Great with the girls, love the girls, started to go along. Did you have a proper job ever? When I left, it's funny you should say I was a hit with the girls. I, when we moved, when my dad must have got his, his, his job from City to Merseyside or Merseyside to City, we moved from Heighton and we moved to Blundell Sands and that meant I had to move school. So I went from like being in Malvern and Page Moss, which was, which was in Heighton, which was a, a girls and boys school who played football, leading goal scorer, Bit of a playboy with the ladies I was. We went and moved me to an all-boys school that played rugby. He took me ladies and me football off me in one go. I was devastated. Um, so when I left school, I didn't do very well in school, Pete, to be honest. Um, 
It was O-levels when I was in school, so I think I got two O-levels, believe it or not. English, three I got. English literature, English language and religion, believe oh, it or wow. not. I got religion as, a, as an O-level. Uh, didn't do any questions about, like... The feeding of the or none of that. There was like all. It was like a multiple choice. You could do questions on like help the aged and things. And I was very good at English, so I passed them three. And when I left school, um, I went to, to Ubay College to do City and Gills electrical installation, and I was a spark. Um, but it was around that time, around the time I was like eighteen, nineteen, that I started to go off the rails. That was like eight, 1988, 1989. That's when you were going off the rails. That's when I started, yeah. you know, the whole rave scene, this acid house, house music that was coming over from America around 1988 was just hitting the UK. Well, let's leave that for a sec. So you did your, you were a spark. Yeah. Did you work as a spark? I did, yeah, I did, yeah. My dad actually got me, set me up in my own business um, with a guy called Vince who was in, from Formby. Yeah. And we had D&B Electrical Services. How um, long did you do that for? 18 months, All right. two years, yeah. um, and I was, yeah, I was climbing on the floorboards and in roof spaces, but I had my little ghetto blaster with me. It used to take me a little ghetto blaster, and I was responsible for the music on the sites. So when did you decide you wanted to be a disc jockey? So was there a first job ever? Um, there's a difference between a disc jockey as in a DJ in a, in a club. And a radio presenter for me are two completely different things. So which one did you want to do so, first? Yeah, I, I, I was wanted to be a DJ. Yeah. Once I could started to be able to get into nightclubs, when I had me me fake ID and me fake muzzy, that like I, I started to be able to sneak into nightclubs and um, and then when this whole house music rave scene kicked in around eighty eight, um, I was just like I was besotted with the DJs. So let me stop you there. So that's when you went into the music industry. You were never in in the days of Lulu and those records. You went straight into the house rave DJing. Yeah, I mean we used to go out when I was sixteen, seventeen, sneaking into places in like we used to go to Quadrant Park before it became a, a rave club. Yeah. It was it was a commercial a, a commercial night. So Charlie C was the DJ. Do you know Charlie? I know Charlie. Charlie C was and the he's DJ. He's still around. He is. He's amazing. <laughs> so he was the DJ in there around 1986, 87, um, and he used to play like Curiosity Kill the Cat, oh. uh, lots of soul and, and like um, Jocelyn Brown and Luther Vandross and Bobby Brown, and it was full. Two thousand people in there. Um, so. I was already getting the bugger going out, but then this whole house music scene kicked in. And I was still into my music then. I used to have these little bush hi-fis in the house. I'd pretend I was DJing. I had two little stacks, and I'd be trying to mix from one to the other. Um, so it was looking back, it was in there. And when you were mixing, that was records. Oh, it was records. It was we're records. Not, yeah, and they weren't proper decks. It was just yeah. two little little yeah. bush hi-fis that I was trying to blend music with. So it was there from an early age. So but, as you discovered Rave... What was happening in your personal life? Had you got somebody in your life? Because I know you're married and happily married. Had had you got her in your life then? Or were you just playing the field? So when I was around that age, um, I was 18, 19. I was uh, in a relationship and I had a, a daughter, uh, which I haven't really spoke about a lot. In fact, I don't think I've ever mentioned on one of my podcasts Um I had a daughter when I was 18, um, and the fact that I was then swept away by this whole scene, um, I lived with me, me little girl and her mum for a couple of years, till she was three, um, and then 
it was 1990, so this sort of time, and I was swept away at this point, completely swept away by the whole rave scene. I mean, like, I was up and down the country at illegal raves. I was starting to take ecstasy. Um, this whole rave acid revolution that had descended upon the UK, I was just completely swept away with, completely. Uh, me and the mum split up, and, you know, me and my daughter lost touch for oh, quite a while. Are you in touch now? We do. We, we, we do. We do. We have contact now. Right. We have contact now. Right. We'll um, leave that. We'll leave that because it evidently is very tender still. So, what is a, the word rave? What is a rave? Because it's now developed into a music industry that I don't understand your side of the industry at all. I really don't. I see when I come to um, St. Helens to the festival, which we'll talk about later, <coughs> excuse me, I see the way people react to the music and it absolutely knocks me over. But when you were addicted to it, are you? An, have you an addictive personality anyway? Um, I think, yeah, I have. I mean, if, I, if, I, if I'm all in, I'm all in. I'm sort of one of them right. people who, if, if, I, if I don't want to do something, I don't really tend to do it. But if I do want to do it and I do it like... You're full in. Full on. Yeah. Um, and that whole scene, like it, around 88, 89, 1991 more, them two years, was something very, very special, you know, like... Well, what was an illegal rave? What, what I mean, was that? Well, back then it was just breaking into warehouses with, with, with generators, setting Technics vinyl decks up, big, massive sound systems, and these were breaking out all over, like Blackburn, Stoke, um, Warrington... Um, all these places were starting to break out with these illegal raves. Um, and then, obviously, the nightclubs then took a gamble on this sound of music because it didn't have a good name at that point because there was just thousands of people, all obviously high on drugs. Not all of them, but Most it, of them. Came the, it, the it came with the ecstasy revolution. Yeah. It came with the ecstasy revolution. Um, and, you know, obviously, it, it, it got a bad name. Um, so lots of the nightclubs weren't prepared to take this, this sound on. The Quadrant Park did um, in Bootle. And there was a few iconic nightclubs then. Each city sort of had their own. Hacienda was, was Manchester's equivalent. Uh, Shelley's in Stoke was, with DJ Sasha was their equivalent of, of the Quadrant Park in that, in that 1991 era. And generations of people were just swept away. If anyone gets a chance to go on YouTube and just type in Quadrant Park 1990 and look at the clips, it's literally mind-boggling. The reaction you get into songs, there and was, that was the club on the corner, which is no longer there. It's no it? longer there now. No, there's no. a big sign in it front is, yeah, of it by yeah. the traffic lights. It is, yeah, in yeah and that was a huge club. Wasn't it was it? a massive nightclub, and it was previously Charlie. C was the DJ, but then yeah. took a gamble on on Mike Nola and and John Kelly and and these these and James Barton, who went on to, to obviously form Cream. He was resident DJ yeah. there as well, and there was. Rickies, lawyers, solicitors, people on the dole, people who had loads of money, people who had no money, all hugging, sharing chewies. <laughs> like, it was just like, it was like two years of love um, through the music, through the ecstasy. And, and yeah. it was, we were up and down the country at that point. So what, what was your first ever job? As a DJ. As a DJ. My first ever, ever job as a DJ. So in them eras, I used to sit and I used to chat with Mike Nola, who was the resident DJ at the Quads and Park. And I got to know Mike well, and we'd sit and talk about music, and I would just sit and watch them and see the response he was getting to the to the tracks. And I was like, wow. I was just blown away. It was at that point I wanted me set of turntables. So it was then, it was around then I got my first set of decks. So I was 21. Um, and 
the only way for me to make some money in order to buy me music, to buy the vinyl, was was to go and DJ. So I then started DJing at um, weddings and functions. I was the resident DJ, believe it or not, in the Heighton Labour Club in Finch Lane. Um, or it might have been the Duffcott Labour Club. I used to do Saturday nights there because my uncle was the DJ there and he wants to, He said to me, do you want to step in and do my Saturday? So I used to play Gary Puckett and and like all like Young Girl and Third Finger Left Hand, Band of Gold, Come On Eileen, all the big party stuff I used to play in there. But it used to get me 75 quid and I would then go to Three Beat or Hot Wax in Warrington. I'd spend it on vinyl. Then I got a residency in the Phoenix, which was a pub in Cantor Farm. Um which my mate John Oy used to own. I did Friday nights and Saturday nights. I bought all my own stuff. I even found a letter the other day, which was a letter that I wrote to the bank to try and get a loan to buy all my equipment. And I had to put how you're going to get your money back, how you're going to repay it. Uh, and my uncle went as a guarantor on that, my late uncle. When and I, did it work? Did you get it, your business It did, I got all my gear. Great. And I, was, I had to take it all to the Phoenix in my boot, uh, set it all up on a Friday and Saturday. And then from Saturday, I would go. That was probably around 1990. Three, I reckon, by that point. Um, and I would then go from there to the state and be knocking on the doors of the state for Alan Larkin and, and, and to let me into the state. And then that was the whole, I just wanted to be a, I wanted to be a big club DJ. But it wasn't easy to, to get in. You know, very thankful to, to Davey T. Davey can, T yeah. gave can me... You, can you remember your first uh, fee? How much you got? In the state, I used to get 75 quid a night. For how many hours did you do? That was for the whole night. For the whole night, so yeah. 75 So I was in the state from 92 yeah. to 1995. That was, to me, one of the most iconic, beautiful buildings in the north of England. It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, we are back in there on Boxing Night. Well, we, we'll have been in there on Boxing Night. Yeah. Um, it's a gorgeous place. It is stunning. It lists the building, the list of walls, um, and it's very special when we get to back to go back in there. Lee! Explain to my listeners, and I'm talking to Lee Butler from In Demand, uh, from Reminisce, from just everywhere, the man, uh, and has a dark side, we're doing this in two parts, because has a dark side, a terrible side, uh, part of his life, which he's turned around, which we'll talk about. But explain to me something, because I don't understand it. How come some disc jockeys, broadcasters, or no, DJs, earn unbelievable amounts of money ridiculous amounts of money which a lot of people listening will say is obscene explain that whole thing to me it's it's two very different sorts of scenes isn't it you know I, i'm i've had opportunities to play abroad to play and i'm just really content at, at, at being who i am in liverpool um i'm so grateful for the following that i've amassed there's like I speak to so many lovely people. Well, you felt you felt reminisce. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> you know, it's not just Dallas, me. It's not just 30, 35,000 people. You know, so it's it's. But I'm really, really content. But there's 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 me as just a local a local lad, uh, and then there's your national, worldwide, global DJs. And these are the ones I want to know about because I don't. Understand you, you know, it. your David Guetta's. These are all multi multi, like chart topping anthems like they're global djs they're... so let me stop you there then for my listeners that don't know and understand this because you've now moved into a different genre so it's not a dj playing a record they create the records explain when that. i do sometimes yeah. i do some talks for the young djs up-and-coming djs at mode training and places like that and they'll be like a, a big uh, like room big room full 
and they're all doing their DJ lessons and they'll get me down to have a gab with them and they say, well, what's the one bit of advice you would give mm-hmm. an up-and-coming DJ right now? And I say, learn to make music. Like that, if, if, to if make music, to not make, play, to make, make it make music. Yeah. Learn to make music. Because all these global DJs that are all around the world, they are all... They've all had massive hit records. They're all producing their own records. Other DJs, I said, if you can start making your own music, you've got to, you one up on everyone else because so you're it, making the tracks. Other people yeah. are wanting your music. So, in other words, to my listeners that don't know and understand, they are the artists. They are the Lulu. They are the Kylie. They are the Mariah. The pop stars as well, pop David Guetta, because they make. Their own music. Yeah, Tiesto, all these huge so national that's DJs. Why they big money. Uh, the late Avicii, yeah. you know, like there's lots of people who, who were just that bedroom DJ, but one big song, literally, Pete, one big track that blows up and goes globally. Yeah. Like, take Avicii, I mean, he obviously he's passed away as a young lad, but um, take Avicii's levels track, massive number one in, in multiple countries all over the world pretty much an, an, an unknown DJ then became an absolute global superstar there's lots of them like that who one big song and I say to these young up and coming DJs be a DJ if that's your passion you want to go out and play music in in clubs in bars do it but make music as well because that's where the the and big books are do you make music I cannot make music myself so one of the regrets I have is not learning to learning the software to make music. I'd love to be able to play the piano, but I'm very lucky we have access to Christian here and, and Tommy Mack. This is at in demand. In, in demand, and they are music producers, so I sit in the studio every week and make music, um, which I really enjoy, um, making my own music with Christian. He, obviously, he's the producer, so I will sit there with the ideas and come in and we'll bash ideas around. So I always say to like up-and-coming DJs, learn to make music at an early age. And these young kids now, they're so like far advanced than us, aren't they, Rick, with technology and stuff. That's interesting you say about that. How old are you now? 53. Right, 53. Are you, and I say this with respect, are you being left behind or are you fighting every day to keep in with what's going on? Is it changing all the time? Um, I, I'm just very, very content with, with what I do. Do you know, like, I don't feel like I have to fight to fit in with anything. I'm just, like... Which is a nice way to be. It, in our industry... Because it's it a is. cutthroat. Listen, Pete, I always say that the one biggest talent you can have, especially on the radio as a, as a radio presenter, because it's, it's, it's a big difference. The difference between me and, and a radio presenter is huge. Do you know, you would not, I, I would not fit on any other radio station other than a local Liverpool radio station. But lots of radio presenters who have a really stereotypical, neutral sound and voice could go and work in any city. Yeah. I'm very content to just... I always say to people if they're talking to me about radio, what's the one thing you you think you can really shine on the radio of being yourself? If you can just be yourself. Yeah. And it's not easy because when that mic goes up, even to just talk like yourself, when that mic goes up, it's very easy to turn into, yeah, I'm a rebellion, yeah, I'm this big DJ. And it, just to be you, to be like, that's the blessing I've got on in demand of, of a morning. I genuinely just am having fun. I'm just opening the mic up with Claire, with Gemma, and we just have a laugh. We're talking to Lee Butler about uh, music, and uh, next week we're going to go deep. But right now, it, it's great. So you've, you've you've created this. this. I, I love the fact that you said you're content. That I love very much indeed, because that's a big thing. Now, when did you start on radio? 
Um, oh, you know what's a difficult question? That I was doing really well in the in the in clubland in Liverpool. I was I was in the state ninety two to ninety five. Then ninety five, ninety six. I left there to go to the Buzz Club for twelve months. Then ninety six to two thousand five. I was in do five one for like ten years. So all Liverpool's big nightclubs, such a big following. Like two so generations were brought up with me, so to speak, in these nights. That's the lovely thing about lots of the lots of the time I speak to people. They're like. The power of the music, really. Some of the best nights of their lives were with me. Let me stop you there. I'll tell you why. Because reminisce is your way of saying thank you to the listeners and they and your fans are all there of all different ages and they live for that I day, say this, don't they? I say they this, live for that day. This, this era of 90s and noughties, more than 90s, that decade, and then the noughties, some of the noughties, it's not just the people of my age that are absolutely incredibly passionate about it. Like, they hear a vocal or a bass line and they're like, oh, and then you hear them cheers and them roars because it means it takes them back to some of the best nights of their lives. But I do 18th and 21sts and, and 40s and these young kids know all the words to Three Years Family. They know all the words to Show Me Love. They know all the words to JK Beat It. They know all the words to all the songs because their brothers and sisters or their mums and dads have been brought up playing it for so long. That they're asking me these young younger yeah. generation that want me to play. That's why I'm very blessed because I still get inundated with bookings for 18th and 21st. And really, you should. You think, well, why are they booking me? No, I love that. I love that because it's a surprise. It's a surprise to the people who have the party and they go, "I've got Lee Butler." I loved it when you just started doing that. I thought that was what I thought that was a blessing. But people often to so say to me, people, "How come yeah. you don't about doing private parties, Lee? Why do you why do you still do private parties?" I, these people who book me for their weddings, for example, like they're thrilled to bits. Some of the best atmospheres come at the weddings because you've got a generation of people who were brought up listening to you and they're going mental on the floor. Mm. You're playing all their songs from the 90s and their best nights of their lives at their wedding and the likely, and you get looked after and treated so well there. They're so grateful for you to come in. And they will never forget it as long as they live. It is. They'll talk about it to their grandkids, think, everything. The, the radio came when Radio City... Um, offered me I was doing little bits with Pez on his club zone interviews and mixes and I got a late night spot called What the Butler Saw which was at 2 o'clock in the morning it was Lee's three biggest tunes Richard Maddox was, was the, uh, the, the boss. boss at the time and that was where it started that's probably over it's got to be 19 I don't know I'd be guessing it's got to be 25 years ago I would have thought 20 years ago it was a middle of the night show uh, and that was my first ever uh, gig I used to pre-record them with Kelvin and of course, Radio what City. Was, and my ex-producer. And of course, the wonderful thing about late night is that the type of people and the music you were playing and your audience were that type of people. It became huge. It is. It is, and so much so that that I've, I got my first radio show, which was Plastic Surgery, which was a Friday night show on Radio City. Um, and that was really where it kicked on. Yeah. We used to get such an amazing listenership. <laughs> um, back the figures for that was we, we did so well in the end that. Uh, the Saturday show came available. Yeah, but well, that wasn't before. Ju there was there was Juice came in. Um, I think it was, it was it was very early years of Juice made an offer for me to offer me two nights, and then I'd actually signed to go to Juice um, when Richard Maddox and Tom Hunter met me, and um, they offered me a deal. Yeah, to stay. 
that you had to stay I which was yeah. great basically yeah, yeah. you're staying uh, so I stayed at City and, and got both nights Friday and Saturday night um, plastic surgery both nights and, and were hugely successful and it was brilliant yeah, yeah. and then and then radio changed and, and, and we all got networked and we moved away and that's where the passion for this radio station came when I, I knew Liverpool was desperate for a radio station of its own now in demand is incredibly successful. It's a new style of radio stations and we have new techniques because it's DAB and all the complications that a lot of people might be listening that still don't understand DAB and how to find stations and on the phone and whatever. But that's another that's another story. In Demand is very successful. Um, you were nervous at doing the breakfast show, weren't you, at the beginning? Unbelievably. <laughs> I mean, when I was on City, for me to leave Radio City through choice, was a massive decision. Yep. Very difficult. I was there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. You're like, it's very tough to walk away. But I'd, what we started this podcast as was, Lee, tell me about the passion for your music. How passionate are you about your music, Lee? And I told you about the power of the music and we talked about my dad and growing up. Ultimately, I had lost the love for the music of the station because I had no input into the music, none. I would do. I, had, I lost my weekend shows because they got networked across the country. So then they didn't want me to go. So they offered me Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon, um, which I appreciated because they really didn't genuinely want me to go. They wanted, but they, there was no dance stuff to give yeah, me. Yeah. So then I was playing Justin Bieber, Little Mix, and the passion for the music had gone. I had no input. I had four hours of music on my screen. I could not change a thing. And let me stop you there and say to the listeners, when he says about his passion. The, the, the difference is ridiculous because that's why you listen because you listen to Lee because you know his passion so I can understand the waning and the way you would feel and I did enjoy doing my yeah. show because I always bring bags of personality on the radio so when I was doing them shows on City on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon I would put loads of fun in there loads of great features funny features interactive and we talking really locally about Liverpool but I had no passion about the music and it was in the end when Juice was bought by Capital and Liverpool really, in the end, didn't have a real local radio station that was playing music yeah. that Liverpool loves. How long did it take to set In Demand up? It was an idea I had and I run by Steve for... Steve Cocky. Yeah, for 18 months before we acted on it. It was actually, we were building it in the background whilst I was still at City. And we were like, could this work? You know, obviously with the team and Christy and building the app building the radio station, everything else that was on. And it's a huge task. People from the outside in go, I'm smashing it there at In Demand, aren't you? Like, yeah, you must be, yeah, you, you must be, you're retiring soon. And I'm like, <laughs> listen. It's I, an organisation, it's running li- a listen, radio station. it's three years you? old and yeah. we really, like, we're just about at a point where we're, we're maybe just breaking even right now. It's like, it's to set it up and the costs and to go on DAB and to build your station and to pay the overhead. It's extortionate, but we're massively passionate. We believe in it. We really believe that in this is going to become, and it is, our figures are proving that. Uh, the, you know, the people... Well, you that, advertisers, people are queuing up to join the you. The people that are advertising with us now are not just, you know, we're, we're getting big brands, Johnson's, Toyota, Taskers, these bigger organisations are coming and trust us because... The people of Liverpool, if you want to advertise to the people of Liverpool, you need to be on In Demands because we are a proper local radio station. Not only broadcasting locally, talking about our city, but playing music the city loves. Lee Butler, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, wow, what a setup. Uh, I am going to be talking to Lee next week, and it's going to be darker next week. A big, dark section of his life. Wow. 
that's a history of music. Uh, the rave, the passion, and it's in demand, and it's Lee Butler. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.